Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Balin Linekin, a food lawyer, scholar, adjunct law professor, and farm-to-consumer legal defense fund board member. He's the author of 2016's Biting the Hands That Feed Us, How Fewer Smarter Laws Would Make Our Food System More Sustainable. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Balin. Thanks very much for having me on. Appreciate it. You start your book with a story of uh, Chef Mark Danitis's artisanal salumeria, which I think was a new word to me, uh, and you kind of reference that in the book, in my hometown of Denver, Colorado, and how certain fruit and laws made it difficult for him to have his business. So I think it's a good story because it kind of says the two sides of these laws can hurt people, especially food safety laws. So what is the story of Chef Mark Danitis's artisanal salumeria? Um, it is, uh, a, I guess a, a sad story. Um, but one that was initially one of, uh, you know, of sort of joy and artisanship. Uh, Mark is from Western Massachusetts. I'm, I'm from uh, the North shore of Massachusetts. So I, I feel some kindred spirit with him. Uh, he, uh, is in, uh, lives in Denver or just outside. And he started this artisanal salumeria, um, which, is a, I guess a, a nice or fancier way of saying that he uh, made things like sausages and you know, dry cured meats um, in the Denver area. He started it, uh, I guess, five or six years ago now, and instantly it was a hit. I mean, he was buying his uh, his hogs from a local uh, agriculture um, sustainable ag farm and uh you know he was only using just a few ingredients i think i wrote a reason column uh, about him uh, a few years back and uh, he said that you know he just used uh, uh animals uh, you know pork uh, salt spices um and thyme t-i-m-e as opposed to t-h-y-m-e and that was really all he did um and as many people know the United States Department of Agriculture, the USDA, um, has some strict regulations around you know, production and um, slaughter and whatnot. And an inspector must be you know, on site at all times when you're slaughtering and or processing um, meats. And uh, he he did so. You know, uh, he worked with the USDA. He uh, marked it, uh, was incredibly successful. Um, he won awards, uh, within months of starting up, he was, uh, you know, being, um, lauded by magazines and in, in Denver, he won, uh, eater.com, uh, gave him an award as, a, you know, an outstanding new chef. Um, and he was, you know, the talk of the town. I, I guess, Trevor, you said you grew up around Denver and, uh, I don't know if you, uh, thought of the place as, uh, this, sort of bastion of old world meats, but, um, uh, <laughs> that's but, the first you know, thing he, I think of really. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he was hailed as, as turning Denver into that kind of place. Um, and, uh, Bravo, the network that, uh, airs uh, top chef, uh, hailed him as quote, the sausage King. Um, so he was incredibly successful right off the bat when he, um, and, uh, both with customers and also with the USDA, who inspected all of his foods and and found nothing wrong uh, with them at all. And uh, that was great up until one day when the USDA decided that his methods, his old world methods um, that had achieved safe results were no longer sufficient. Um, again, not because of any pathogens found in the food or anything like that. The USDA just decided it was going to enforce some existing regulations differently. Um, 
and it ordered him to either add uh, nitrates or nitrites, which help uh, dehydrate the, the meat. And uh, re really, I think water is the, the thing in foods like that that uh, can help uh, breed pathogens. Um, and he said, you know, listen, I've, I've been achieving great results. You know this. I have independent testing. I've sold these meats to the U.S. military. You know, there's, there's overwhelming evidence that my food is safe and my methods are safe. Um, and the USDA said, well, that's, you know, that's too bad. Uh, so you know, your choice is either to add nitrates or nitrites or to close up shop. Um, and Dinitis, you know, he was, his, uh, shop was called Il Mondo Vecchio, which translates to the old world. Um, and from, you know, most of the history of the old world, nitrates and nitrites weren't added to um, meats during the curing process. And he said, you know, listen, I built my whole business on this model of using old world methods and, you know, modern science to ensure that food is that I'm producing is tasty and safe. And he said, and I can't do that to my customers. So he chose instead of, uh, changing his method simply to close up shop. Um, but I mean, if we're talking about, uh, old world cured meat production, I imagine that, a bunch of people got sick uh, back in, say, whether it's 17th century, 18th century. Uh, seems like nitrates or nitrites. I mean, they do something effectively, I think, at least to pre prevent those kind of pathogens. Correct? Um, they do. They do. And and by, although I mean, one could just as easily argue that uh, you know, of all the meats that are recalled around the country for having uh, pathogens, um, most if not all of them were produced using nitrates or nitrites. Um, so there are no guarantee, but my argument in the book and, and elsewhere is that if one can achieve excellent results, um, you know, that they verify through testing and whatnot, uh, you know, you can, there, you know, there are different ways to, uh, you know, skin a cat, um, or to make sausage, uh, safely and, and tastily. And Tinnitus did everything right. Uh, he did everything he was supposed to up until, what he was supposed to do changed. Uh, so, you know, it's a question of whether uh, we should allow people the freedom to produce foods, uh, you know, uh, that are inarguably safe um, using methods that they find appropriate or that, uh, you know, they've been using for some period of time, uh, or whether we should have the government tell us how we're attempting to make food and, and giving us, you know, sort of a, um, you know, a, a one choice, uh, and uh, obviously, I'm I'm not in favor of uh, the government telling us, you know, there's only one way to do something that you know not only stifles traditional methods, but it also stifles innovation. But why do we have? What's special about food in this arena? Because you could analogize the story that you've just told to someone who a, a medical provider who um, sees, say, children and practices traditional old world methods and the children have been safe for a long time but this guy says you know like you you can prevent the flu with lemon juice or something and no children's gotten sick to date um but we say look you know we've that's not acceptable like you can't practice medicine that way because just because someone doesn't gotten sick doesn't mean that they're not going to get sick um that you know we're trying to we're trying to practice Practice preventative care, um, and and that this is we we've moved on from those methods. So, 
I mean, is is food different somehow? Like, should we kind of put up with old worldiness in food in a way that we wouldn't in other areas? Um, I don't necessarily. I mean, my book focuses squarely on food, not medicine, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm certainly a food law and policy uh, expert, but uh, not a medical expert. Um, but with those caveats in mind, um, I don't think that you know just because something is an old world method doesn't make it uh, wrong or fraught with peril. In your example of you know someone treating children with lemon juice um, and claiming that uh, you know to have achieved some uh, results that you know you prevent the flu with it, say. Um, I think it's uh, a different story to suggest that, you know, what uh, an adult can buy at the store um, that's been tested and proven to not contain pathogens uh, is sort of a, a different animal than, uh, you know, someone treating children who are not, uh, you know, uh, by definition are not adults. Um, and... So I think there's, you know, it doesn't quite line up as a one-to-one uh, analogy. Well, there's also uh, there's preferences and tastes and, and what your risk level is about eating. Say, if you like rare steak, you can eat rare steak. Um, I think in some countries it's more difficult to have rare steak than it is or some places. Uh, but and on that right. question about these USA, USDA rules in, in the mm -hmm. case of uh, the, the, the artisanal uh, salumeria, it seemed kind of bizarre. Like, why did the USDA? This, this happens a bunch in your book, where everything seems to be going okay, and then some. Some guy at the USDA decides to completely turn on a dime or, or change a rule that is extremely possibly harmful, puts someone out of business. Uh, do they, does the USDA behave in this sort of random way often? Yes, or, or the yes, FDA? Absolutely. <laughs> um, and for some reason, uh, based on. Both, you know, my research and, uh, uh, I guess, you know, hearsay from people I've spoken with, uh, the the uh, the Denver area and USDA inspectors there are particularly notorious for uh, enforcing rules uh, in a, a way uh, that, is, that is different to inspectors around the country um, and doing so uh, much more stringently. Um, a lot of rules are, you know. Uh, particularly for inspection, uh, are, are subjective, um, or at least are treated that way uh, by inspectors by, uh, with the USDA, with the FDA. Um, and I was uh, I recently wrote about a new Canadian food safety law, and one of the main concerns uh, of a, an attorney, I, uh, a Canadian food law uh, attorney I spoke with for uh, for the article was uh, he worried that you know the the uh, the new laws would be enforced subjectively. Um, this is a an enormous problem for you know federal, state, and local rules that apply to uh, foods and to frankly producers of all kinds and sizes. But obviously, uh, a large food company has um, much more sway and pull with uh, regulators and, and lawmakers than does uh, you know someone like Mark Tinnitus who's making uh, you know various uh, cured meats um, in in a you know one or two or three man operation is there a process for recourse or at least attempted recourse like so if he's built his whole business he's invested a ton of money you know he's so there's there would be a, there's a heavy financial burden in shutting down or in changing the way that you do things and then a 
inspector kind of arbitrarily changes the way that he or she feels about enforcing a law or maybe you know one inspector quits and another one starts is there a process by which he can at least say like look you've just destroyed my business through an arbitrary change um yes so there he would have had two options um one uh was that the USDA uh, offered to let him do something called a challenge study which is essentially a you you know, pay scientists a bunch of money to prove that your food is safe. And there's actually, you know, uh, I'm drinking a cup of coffee right now. There's no way to prove that cup of coffee is safe scientifically. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, to sort of prove the negative that this contains, you know, nothing that could ever kill one is sort of a fool's errand and a waste of money. And he also would have been, uh, Dinitis, uh, not allowed to continue selling his food while he was uh, carrying out this challenge study. So that was a non-starter for him. The other one is just to go through the administrative appeals process, um, you know, it, uh, principles of administrative law. Um, you, you know, appeal, your appeal is rejected. You go before an administrative law judge. Um, you know, this go goes on for a while. And uh, you know, you you win or lose, and ultimately, uh, once you've exhausted your appeals, then you can uh, sue in a, a court of law. Um, but again, this is a tremendously time-consuming and costly process that uh, you know some large food company, Unilever or something, Kraft, uh, might be able to go through, but that some smaller producer just—it's uh, not that they can't be bothered; it's that they can't afford. Um, you know, not to be making money uh, while they're going through this appeals process that can take years. Yeah, of course. Um, in 2011, President Obama signed the Food Safety Modernization Act, which was a fairly significant overhaul of food safety rules. In general, how has that act been instantiated? I mean, is it has it been a successful modernization of our food safety standards? Um, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it was hailed as this, uh, you know, the biggest uh, development in food safety and food regulation in more than 75 years. Um, I believe that it's modernized uh, food safety in some ways, but it hasn't uh, made food safer, and I don't think it will. The, the regulations took years to develop, and they're still being rolled out, so it's difficult or impossible to say at this point uh, whether the regulations have, have actually made food safer. Um, but the, the general premise, uh, at least the, sort of the bells and whistles, uh, uh, that the FDA was, uh, arguing, uh, for in, in supporting this law, uh, was that it would move the FDA from, uh, a reactive to a preventative approach. And that sounds nice. Um, but the math just doesn't really shake out the FDA. You know, there are two key rules that apply to, uh, food that we eat that's grown in this country or, or produced in this country. Uh, one concerns good manufacturing processes and the other one concerns produce, so fruits and vegetables. Um, and the FDA in their best case estimate, and I discussed this in my book, um, I think it was somewhere between 2 and 4% was the uh, their best case for improvements in food safety under this law. And you know, for half a billion dollars uh, a year, um, that's not a lot of bang for one's buck. Um, and yeah, there, there are some reasons for this. Uh, one is that the, uh, FDA doesn't regulate all of the food supply. 
Um, another is that uh, pathogens, foodborne illness, uh, norovirus is actually the most common. You know, it's typically associated with cruise ships, um, but norovirus is you know something that's transferred from someone who's preparing your food typically uh, to you through the food. And the FDA doesn't really have any mechanism for regulating the the person who's chopping the, your lettuce in a, a restaurant kitchen for example. Um, so, and that's, that's six out of 10, uh, cases of foodborne illness right there that this, these regulations can't touch. Um, and, and so, you know, this is, I think it was, I, I had always argued it's a lot of uh, show and the results even by the FDA's own numbers, uh, can't possibly have the impact they promised. So if, if this has, I, this this new law since 2011 has either improved food safety or they expect it will improve improve food safety two to four percent, which you said isn't doesn't look like that much. <clears throat> What's the FDA's overall track record? Like, do we do we have evidence that the FDA like at all really improves food safety? Like, was food radically less safe before the FDA? Has food safety been improving over time since we've had? these kind of broad regulations of whatever form they might take? Yeah, no, food is definitely uh, safer today than probably uh, at any time in human history um, in in this country and in other developed countries, um, which is not to say that foodborne illness doesn't happen. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, influenza just happens, happens at Chipotle well. a lot. <laughs> Chipotle yeah. and lettuce. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, I mean, I think that, and I, I, I give credit where credit is due. One facet, for example, of the food safety modernization act that I support, um, although the FDA didn't want this authority, um, is that the FDA can order a mandatory recall of food that it knows, uh, you know, or has determined, uh, contains some sort of pathogens it, before it would have to ask the company. And it was a timelier process or more time consuming process, um, so, you know, I support that. I think uh, regulations, some of them have, in fact, made our food safer. I think the threat of, uh, you know, sort of a uh, an inspection every once in a while probably improves food safety ever so slightly. Um, but I think generally, you know, we have just as much uh, uh, consumer education, uh, corporate uh, and, uh, you know, other practices, uh, Social media, you know, Yelp is huge for uh, making sure that we have uh, safer food because you know it's uh, you can trace uh, outbreaks and whatnot to restaurant reviews, um, and you know some uh, food safety researchers are actually doing that now uh, as and using it as an accurate uh, determinant of, of foodborne illness. So, yeah, I think that uh, certainly there are some regulations that we can thank for safer food, but I think that that's only one small part of the much larger picture. Well, then in in light of that, um, is well, I guess first like how common then are situations like Chef Mark um, Denitis's and, and are they kind of just a reason – like given that there's going to be humans involved in this process, there's going to be, you know, if you're having specters, there's got to be judgment calls of some kind. People are enforcing it. They might differ slightly. Is is stuff like his situation kind of the, a, a cost worth paying for the overall benefits, knowing that we can't ever have, you know, perfect enforcement where this kind of thing would never happen? 
Um, let's see. So no, uh, no, it's not a cost worth bearing. Um, I think that uh, you know, the uh, USDA's actions and certainly other uh, FDA actions that I've looked into and in, both in the book and elsewhere, um, if they're not making food safer, then they're simply, um, as I said earlier, sort of restricting um, traditional practices, restricting innovation. And some of those traditional practices and innovations could in turn um, make our food safer in the future. And so, um, you know, if these uh, sort of arbitrary decisions come down from inspectors or if regulations are written so poorly that they can be uh, interpreted in a variety of ways, uh, it, it doesn't make us better off. Um, no one is better off for uh, not being able to eat Mark Dinitis' food, and certainly Mark Dinitis is not better off for uh, being unable to sell, to produce and sell that food. Um, so no, I, I think that, uh, it's, uh, you know, any regulation that puts someone out of business, even one person, uh, you know, for, for no reason, um, is, is not a regulation worth supporting. Your book is not just about food safety laws. It's about a lot of laws that govern food and, and two of the most fascinating chapters I think of the book are the discussion of farm subsidies. Uh, so, for, so first of all, uh, we hear about farm subsidies when the farm bill comes up and it seems to have a pretty bipartisan opposition often to farm subsidies. But, but mm -hmm. how, how do farm subsidies work and how much or how do they distort our food production system? Um, I guess the, the latter question, how much they distort, uh, there's, uh, there's some debate over you know, exactly how much uh, they influence um, what we grow and what we eat. Uh, and, you know, that's a debate amongst typically agricultural economists. Um, and I'm not sure, I, I'm not an economist. I, I haven't settled on uh, sort of which camp I fall into uh, in terms of you know, the influence of subsidies on, on, you know, what we end up eating. Um, but in terms of what subsidies are and sort of their history, uh, they were um, uh, Secretary Wallace, who worked under then President uh, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, came up with the idea that, uh, you know, we were in this national emergency, the Great Depression. Um, and so we would pay farmers, and by we, I mean taxpayers and the government, uh, you know, to not grow as much food. Um, to restrict their food supply, uh, and that would drive up prices and in turn be better for farmers, although uh, not for consumers. Um, and so this was supposed to be, as uh, Secretary Wallace said, quote, a temporary solution to a national emergency. Um, well, you know, we fast forward something like 80 years and we still have farm subsidies. And you're right that there's a um, it's a, a bill that's passed every five years typically. Um, and there's always a broad coalition of people, you know, folks from, uh, Cato and other, uh, libertarian and conservative, uh, DC think tanks and environmentalist group, uh, you know, the environmental working group, for example, on the left and, and other, uh, sort of, um, left-leaning food, uh, organizations, they all oppose farm subsidies. Uh, these, you know, typically are, are um, payments to, they were direct payments to farmers who were producing things like uh, corn and soy 
um, along with cotton and some other foods. They're, uh, they changed somewhat in form. Um, we now, as taxpayers, subsidize the insurance, the crop insurance that farmers uh, purchase. Um, and that was supposed to help uh, uh, lower costs, but somehow, uh, as I and many others predicted, uh, rather increase costs for taxpayers. Um, so anyways, this is a, you know, it's been around for 80 years. It's the, this broad coalition of conservatives, liberals, libertarians, um, who opposed it. But unfortunately, um, there's a, you know, strong, uh, coalition of liberals and conservatives in Congress who are more than happy to dole out these, uh, these subsidies that, as I note in the book and have noted elsewhere, farmers don't need, um, and yeah, I've spoken to, I spoke to the former head of the uh, Iowa soybean growers, um, visited his farm, and he said, I receive subsidies, but I don't need them. But um, How big are these subsidies? Like if I am, you know, I own a family farm in Iowa, how much money am I getting in subsidies? I can vary dramatically from nothing to a million dollars or more. But of course, um, family farms are not really who these subsidies are going to. Yeah, it's. I mean, uh, there are certainly there are some farms that have received many millions of dollars um, per year for many years, and those are you know, giant farms. Um, small farmers might get uh, you know, either nothing or a smaller amount. I mean, I to me the amount doesn't really matter. I'm opposed to it, whether it's ten dollars or ten million dollars. Um, but obviously, the the real waste comes in with the ten million dollars. And and the. The other chapter I mentioned, I said the the one, the two that really struck me are the farm the farm subsidies, but also the the other one is the food identity laws. Mm -hmm. um, you hear about this every now and then when, or you see it in the grocery store when you see a frozen dairy food product, uh, not not called ice cream or something, mm -hmm. or Miracle Whip, as as you point out in the book. Uh, what the, what are these laws and and and, and why shouldn't they exist? You're very explicit saying well, they shouldn't exist, but uh, how do they affect the food market? So it's, um, yeah, these standards of identity, um, and basically they were created, um, at the behest of, uh, large food producers, uh, you know, the, let's say the, you know, American carrot growers association. I have no idea if there's an American carrot growers association. I, I, I imagine there, me. there is, there's um, a raised administrative committee. So I'm sure there's a, I imagine there's a carrot one too. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, when you go to the store and you, uh, go to buy them, whether it's at Whole Foods or, uh, you know, at Kroger or Safeway, um, you'll see on, on the bag of carrots, something like uh, us number one. And, you know, that means the, you know, the highest quality in carrot. Basically what it means is that all the carrots have a particular color and circumference and are free of, uh, blemishes. And so the USDA is essentially enforcing cosmetic standards, uh, which even the agency admits and has for decades, have absolutely no bearing on the quality of, of the food itself. And frankly, um, you know, any, uh, people complain about, except people from New Jersey who think that their tomatoes are the best, um, <laughs> you know, generally people complain about, you know, the quality of tomatoes. In the U.S. Uh, all the time. Yeah, they're yeah. they're gorgeous. They're so beautiful. Tomatoes are, <laughs> and they taste like nothing. That was I. Uh -huh. I was in um, Romania 
uh, in October and some like a high school kid from Romania came up to me and he's like, is it true that food in the United States is terrible? And I, I was like, no, I think I like I, it's it's pretty good. And eventually it turned out that he just was like dissing our tomatoes. Like that was the one thing he knew about food in America was our tomatoes suck. That's hilarious. So why, um, is, it, is that the, yeah, we well, blame that's, that? that's a good lesson. Can we blame the government for that? Well, we can because of standards of identity. Um, we can and should. And, you know, this it all boils down to the fact that the uh, USDA is enforcing rules for, you know, cosmetic standards that, uh, and so farmers end up uh, producing foods and, you know, raising things that look uniform um, and that look gorgeous on store shelves, but not so much, uh, you know, on the, on the palate. They're, uh, flavorless or sort of lacking. And if you, anyone who shops at a farmer's market um, probably knows that the carrot they get at the farmer's market might be ugly. It might be misshapen. Um, and yet, uh, or it might be huge. It might be tiny, you know, but it wouldn't fit the number one carrot standard established by the USDA. And hence, it can't be categorized as that. Um, it's you know, nice that you can sell it at the farmer's market and get a premium for that and uh, that that carrot tastes great. But uh, unfortunately, for the most part, these foods are not on grocery store shelves, these sort of unsightly misshapen things, um, because the regulations don't uh, uh, you know, allow you to call your carrot number one if it uh, has a bend or something like that. So now what about things like mayonnaise or as I, you brought up, you bring up miracle whip in the book, which has always been a salad dressing. Uh, yes. For, there are people, there are miracle whip. There are p people like mayonnaise and there are people who are wrong and that there are miracle whip people who like salad dressing. But why is it called a salad dressing? Uh, because uh, something like a hundred years ago, um, Hellman's, uh, which is I think still the industry leader in, in mayonnaise, um, uh, argued that there should be essentially a recipe um, for mayonnaise and Miracle Whip, which was a, a lower cost competitor, um, didn't meet that that recipe, that standard of identity um, established by the federal government. And so it couldn't call itself mayonnaise. And so it went with salad dressing, which is strange. I, I think I might actually be one of the only people um, on earth who's uh, – grew up eating a uh, Miracle Whip-based salad dressing. Uh, my, <laughs> my mom would make a Waldorf salad. Oh, yes. Oh, le yeah, yeah. Lettuce, apples, walnuts uh, on Thanksgiving. And the, uh, yeah, Miracle Whip was the key ingredient in the uh, in the salad dressing. And it, that applies to... Unfortunately, may what... have been the only one. It's pretty gross. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so, so what's the, I guess, what's the big deal about that? Because... I mean, on the one hand, Miracle Whip is certainly it's everywhere, and people know who Mar what Miracle Whip is, and it's stocked next to the mayonnaise. And so, if you want it, you can buy it. And and then on the other hand, you know, like if you think you're getting mayonnaise and accidentally get Miracle it's Whip, the that, worst thing, yeah, ever. it can ruin your day. <laughs> so, like, what's the? I mean, we could say like, yeah, this is just kind of nonsense, and it wouldn't really, you know, they could call it whatever they wanted, and it wouldn't bother people. But like, is there is there a harm, or like a real harm, from this law still being in place? Um, there is. And uh, another example that I talk about in the book, uh, I think illustrates this, um, uh, Florida and the FDA, uh, are amongst, uh, the regulatory bodies that, uh, determine that skim milk, um, cannot, uh, or 
could not be called skim milk unless it had certain vitamins added to it. Um, and so there's actually a First Amendment argument that, you know, you can, and, and a, a good one at that, um, you know, that you can have uh, a food that is 100% what it says on the label. Skim milk is skim milk, but if you don't add vitamin A to it, then it's not skim milk. And I think that that's, uh, you know, the Institute for Justice uh, sued on behalf of a Florida uh, creamery owner to get the state to back down um, on First Amendment grounds that, you know, the IJ's uh, client could say, you know, our skim milk is skim milk. And the state had some tortured uh, ideas about, you know, you can't call it skim milk, but how about quote, non-grade A milk product, natural milk <laughs> vitamins removed. And the <laughs> farmer said, what the hell is that? What's that word? Uh, Melorime or um, uh, was that? Was that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, Melorime. Yeah. That's, um, that's another thing that was, uh, and, and you find, and that's a great example, um, just of the sort of influence of large food producers. Um, you know, you can call something a particular, uh, food name, but you know, if, uh, if there's some sort of intervention by uh, by a large food company, then you know you're going to be forced to call your food something that has absolutely no meaning whatsoever, and you uh, you know it's basically um, using the English language to sort of force you into submission. Um, yeah, Mel Melarine you know, was invented by it seemed like almost by Big Dairy, who wanted a different name for for cream related products or something like that. Yeah, it was mainly, um, it referred to, uh, I mean, yes, it was an invented word um, that was used to, I think, uh, refer to like non-dairy creamers, Yeah, of, you know, the kind that you get in a hotel room in a little um, weird pouch. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, it was, you know, you can't call this uh, creamer, you've, you've got to call it melorine, which again, you know, relegates you to the, the Mellorium aisle at the uh, grocery store. And, and of course there isn't one. But as you point out in the book, the, the people who this does seem to hurt, especially because we now are living in this, I mean, food has changed a lot in the last 20 years in America, the the growth of, of organic, the growth of uh, people caring about you know farm to table, sustainable agriculture. I want this done old world style, as we discussed previous in the skim milk uh, you discussed with the IJ case. I mean, that was as pure of milk as they could make, and they were advertising it as a, a very sustainable, pure form of milk that they couldn't call milk. Uh, and, and it seems to these these laws and the and also subsidies and and the amalgamation of slaughterhouses and stuff seem to hurt the people who are trying to innovate in food. Definitely. I mean, in the case of Dinitis, it's someone who's innovating by um, using old world methods. So, you know, innovation by returning to the traditional. Um, but in other cases, uh, there's, you know, the Mayo competitor I discuss, uh, Just Mayo, um, in the book. They, they were uh, sued first by Unilever, which uh, produces Hellman's, uh, and then uh, the FDA cracked down on them being able to use the word Mayo. Um, in large part because they, uh, you know, their, uh, their food was a plant-based alternative that contained no eggs. Um, it was suitable for vegans and vegetarians. And this was not something that Hellman's could stand for. You know, you know, we've, we've already squelched out competition from that salad dressing miracle whip. You know, <laughs> we need to make sure that, uh, you know, that the grocery aisles are, are not, uh, tainted by the presence of a, 
a competitor that that's innovating and um it's yeah, also that, people who want to slaughter cows differently. You talk about the consolidation of slaughterhouses or if you want to discuss the buy, buying the cow when you see it on the side of the road, but you have to ship it 200 miles. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, very frustrating uh, approach. So up until and, – and this, you know, as, as a, an attorney um, and just a, someone who um, appreciates uh, the law for – and the Constitution for what it says – um, what it means uh, in 1967, Congress gave uh, the USDA, and I mentioned this in the book, a power that it didn't actually possess itself. You know, it's interesting when Congress delegates, um, and we can, you know, certainly argue about the um, wisdom and/or efficacy of that action. Um, but it's even better when Congress. Uh, delegates power even it doesn't have to an agency. Um, and so in 1967, <laughs> Congress told uh, the USDA, hey, you know what? You can regulate the intrastate um, inspection and slaughter and processing of uh, animals, you know, of pigs and, and cows and whatnot, um, and establish this system known as equal to, uh, in which states either can operate their own uh, slaughter and processing inspections that are at least equal to, um, in terms of stringency, USDA rules or uh, the USDA itself will send inspectors in uh, to the state. And to these days, about half the states um, operate their own systems and half the states rely on um, the USDA to, to do that inspection. But how can the USDA have the authority to regulate something that happens only in one state? Um, uh, you know, the slaughter of a cow in, in Fresno um, when the, the stakes are from that cow are not going to leave the state. That's wholly within the jurisdiction of, of California um, if it wants to regulate that. And yet we have this uh, system that, uh, that, that essentially, um, you know, cramps and hampers small producers. Uh, years before 1967, the USDA had past regulations, uh, you know, some of which were needed. The Meat Inspection Act of uh, the early 1900s uh, sought to address some pretty disgusting conditions, particularly in the stockyards and uh, slaughterhouses uh, in Chicago. And, yeah, but it, it basically, uh, it was supposed to fight consolidation, but all it's done is uh, drive consolidation. And so, as you pointed out, you know, if, you, if you're a farmer and you're raising a cow, Oftentimes, you have to send the cow hundreds of miles away, oftentimes out of state to have an, uh, you know, it's slaughtered. And oftentimes, and I've heard from so many farmers, I can't even begin to tell you um, in conversations with them, you know, they'll send their cow away and it's, it's a stressful thing for the animal. It's, you know, not great. Obviously, it'd be better if there was some slaughterhouse abattoir in town. Um, and, but the regulations, don't promote that. And so you, you know, have someone sending a cow away and you, what you get back, you can't always be sure it's your cow, um, your steaks. And there's, a, you know, there, there are a whole host of other problems. You get back, you know, an odd number of hoops and you remember your cow had, you know, four of them when, when you set it away. And if you're trying um, to guarantee your, your free range grass fed beef for your, your specific business model, that doesn't seem to help very much. 
if you don't no, if yeah it, it crushes you and uh when there's a food safety recall as as happens um not only do you know the large producers who not always but often um are the uh you know the cause of the problem in the first place um but every cow that went through that same slaughterhouse and and was inspected um and presumably then passed inspection uh, all that meat gets recalled so you know, you're this local artisanal grass-fed beef farmer and you send your cow away, which you don't want to do. Um, but then, you know, the plant has some uh, salmonella or E. coli outbreak. Well, you're going to lose your cow. You're going to lose all that meat. Um, even if you're, you know, you sent the cow away and it was had no bacteria. And even if it doesn't presently have any bacteria, you're out of luck, which is... I just can't imagine how frustrating and mind-numbingly upsetting that is. What do you think the chances are of things getting better in this area? I mean in particular, like it seems that America is increasingly kind of a foodie culture um, and the artisanal and the old world and all these sorts of things and the farm to table and local and all that, which are the things that seem to run into a lot of problems with the the regulations, the laws that you've talked about. Um, those are becoming more and more popular, have more cultural cachet. And so do you think that we'll see kind of a counter movement as as this foodie culture starts running more and more into the FDA's regulatory culture? Thank you for allowing me some optimism. Um, <laughs> but yes, um, I, I absolutely think uh, not only that uh, that that, you know, can happen uh, and that that it will happen, but I think it is happening actually already. Um, and I think it's happening largely at the state level. So you have states like, uh, actually, I mean, it's an interesting list of states too. Uh, Wyoming, North Dakota, Maine, California, um, have all passed laws, uh, within the last few years that either, um, are, have a designation of, as a food freedom law, um, or that's, sort of check the boxes of that sort of law, one that allows uh, more home-based cooks to get involved in, in the food supply and, um, you know, that it sort of embraces a, a much lighter regulatory burden on um, small food producers. And I think that that's, that's a fantastic, um, you know, step towards improving food in the way that you suggested, you know, that we, we have more choices um, from local producers um, and in a way that doesn't uh, impact the you know capabilities or the rights of, of larger food producers either. And the, but as you kind of alluded to there at the end, we talked a lot about the federal government, but the states and municipalities uh, th th have a lot of onerous food regulations too. But also, it may be easier to take action there uh, if you can get together with people from your farmers market and try and get rid of some onerous regulations than it is to fight big dairy. That's absolutely true. I mean, the flip side is that it's also, you know, it's it's easier to pass good laws at the local level than it is at the federal level. But obviously, it's it's equally easier to pass terrible laws at the local level, um, and that's what the you know the sort of the fourth uh, substantive chapter of my book uh, focuses on, um, sort of lo awful local food regulations that you know prevent people from doing things like having a garden in their yard. Um, and so, you know, there, it's a two-edged sword, but I, I think it's still worth pushing for um, better and, and lighter regulations at the local level. 
Thanks for listening. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.